The judge that did that is an imbecile. He's a complete imbecile. Well, you ought to know, Governor. You ought to know. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., up in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast and on Queso in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle, Washington on KODX, in Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, and in Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and yes, in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com, where I'm uh, trying to fight off a, a little bit of a cold. Who's winning? Uh, so far, the cold. We'll <laughs> see. Ask me by the end of this show. Uh, that, of course, is Desi Doyen, who is always winning, our producer. <laughs> uh, thank you all for joining us today. Um, well, this, uh, you know, I've often said that we, the bar for good news has been uh, tremendously lowered in uh, in recent months for some odd reason so this but this is i think does suffice sort of for good news at least in the trump era the austin police chief now says a quote domestic terrorist set off a series of explosions that killed two people and severely wounded four others in the texas capital Why would that uh, suffice as good news in any way, shape, or form? Well, because this Austin police chief for the past month has refused to call this bomber a terrorist. Chief Brian Manley had previously hesitated to label the bombings as domestic terrorism, but at a meeting on Thursday on the police and community response to that uh, string of bombings, Over the past month in Austin, Manley finally labeled the accused bomber a, quote, domestic terrorist for what he did to us. Well, thank you for noticing, Chief. Mark Condit blew himself up as authorities approached him on March 21. He had planted bombs that had terrorized Austin for weeks, beginning on March 2nd, which originally appeared to uh, to target several minority households. Chief Manley had previously called Condit, quote, a very troubled young man, drawing criticism that the bomber would have been labeled a terrorist more quickly if he had not been a white man. Oh, do you think? 
So, I mean, it's only been a month since that first bomb went off, and I, I think we all know that if there had been any hint whatsoever that the bomber was, say, oh, a, a Muslim, or even just a little bit browner than the white domestic terrorist who turned out to be behind this string of bombings. The, shall I add, white Christian evangelical. Was he? Yeah. yeah well, he was homeschooled. That's what, it, that's what happens, I yeah. guess. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, had it been anyone else, any other shade uh, uh, of, of bomber, you know, no less than the president of the United States himself would have been out front screaming about how these acts of terror underscore his need to build a wall and to further restrict immigration, et cetera. But, you know, it was a white guy. It was a white domestic uh, terrorist. So that doesn't count. That doesn't even count. Uh, apparently as being a terrorist, according to the police chief in Austin, until now one month later. So good news? That is, I think, actually very good news because it's it's taken a long time for, I think, most of the media to recognize the bias that is inherent in much of their reporting when it comes to incidents like this. You know, and it's understandable that that is something that people are slow to come to, but it's about time and, we change. And it. it's not, yeah, it's, you know, it's not even bad reporting, bad media. No. It affects everything that we do in this country. The amount of money that we put into so-called international terrorism every day, every month, every year, uh, you know, compared to the uh, to, to the funds of the far greater threat of white domestic terrorism is embarrassing, it's ridiculous, but it is in no small part because of the way it's covered, the way it's dealt with in our laws and the way it's dealt with by the media. So um, anyway, one small step for uh, white, white terrorists there, <laughs> oh, okay. I guess. Uh, anyway, uh, yesterday we discussed uh, the war that is being waged by Republicans on the judicial branch in a whole bunch of stories in a whole bunch of states, particularly when it comes to their response to various court rulings on elections and uh, actual representative democracy. Apparently, Republicans really hate both of those things. Uh, we'll talk some more about that in a moment with... Um, Actually, some more good news out of Wisconsin, and then we'll be joined by author David Daly, who was in the U.S. Supreme Court this week for the latest oral arguments in yet another extreme partisan gerrymandering case that is being heard by the court. But first, uh, a story on my favorite U.S. governor. I'm sorry, I mean the dumbest U.S. governor both can be true. In the nation and probably in the nation's history. I think both are true. That would be, of course, Maine's Paul LePage. I, I, Desi Doyen, do you have any favorite Paul LePage uh, memories of his dumbness? Oh, I know yes. I didn't give you any time to figure this out. But, well, no, my favorite one yeah. is always and forever will be when he um, actually said that the turbines, wind yes. turbines that were at a university in Maine were actually powered by tiny little electric motors so that they could fool people into thinking they were working on wind power, but really they were powered by electricity. <laughs> yes. Paul LePage cracked that one open. Uh, he also he quarantined a nurse. Remember that? They quarantined oh, right. the nurse that had gone to Africa to uh, to fight the Ebola epidemic. And when she got back, he wouldn't let her leave her house. Uh, just one thing after another. He's also a racist who blames uh, African-Americans for the opioid and heroin epidemic in uh, Lily White, Maine. Uh, anyway, dumbest governor. But uh, he, too, is now targeting the federal 
courts after a federal judge in Maryland uh, this week cited Maine Governor Paula Page's stay at President Donald Trump's hotel in Washington, D.C., in a ruling that allowed a lawsuit against the president based on the emoluments clause of the Constitution to move forward. The Republican governor of Maine lashed out at the judge on Wednesday, calling the federal judge an imbecile repeatedly. I didn't realize that I could buy the president so cheap a night in his hotel and he's in my back pocket. That's all I'm going to say. I mean, this is the the governor and the uh, the judge that did that is an imbecile. He's a complete imbecile. That's all I can tell you. Any district court judge, whether it's state or federal, puts that in the paper because I stayed in the hotel, is an absolute imbecile. And I hope that goes national, and I hope he hears it, because he's an absolute imbecile. Oh, it's going national, Governor. <laughs> I think it's going national. I think he will hear it. And I will look forward to the day when, uh, you know, Paula Page ends up in, in court, in that, uh, in that imbecile judge's courtroom someday. I love the fact that Paul, that he starts it by saying, uh, I disagree with this, that's all I'm going to say. And then he goes on to call the guy an imbecile. A couple of times, uh, About yeah. three or four times. <laughs> uh, that is uh, because a federal judge ruled on Wednesday that Maryland, the state of Maryland, and uh, the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., have standing to sue Donald Trump in their case, arguing that he violated the Constitution's emoluments clause by failing to cut his financial ties with his hotel in Washington, D.C. In the ruling, the judge noted a visit, uh, among other uh, things, he noted a visit to Trump's hotel by Paul LePage, as well as a whole bunch of reported visits from foreign officials, etc. Now, the irony of Maine Governor Paul LePage calling anyone else an imbecile is rich. Well, that sort of, yeah, sort of speaks for <laughs> itself uh, if you know anything about Maine Governor Paul LePage. But uh, now we have a sitting governor describing a federal judge repeatedly as an imbecile. Remember, all this judge did, by the way, was decide that Maryland and D.C. have have the standing to move this case forward, that they as entities have the right to challenge the president's ownership of a hotel that uh, being in violation of the emoluments clause that disallows gifts from foreign nations or from uh, states to the president of the United States. The judge here is not finding that the president violated that clause, nor that uh, Paula Page did anything illegal by essentially giving money to the president when he stayed at the hotel on official business. But just that, the, just that the case making some of these arguments can proceed. That's all the judge was doing that uh, earned Paul LePage uh, calling him an imbecile. Anyway, that's one war by a sitting Republican governor against the judiciary. A far more important one has been playing out in Wisconsin, as we discussed on yesterday's show, and as we now seem to have a conclusion to that story, and I believe it's a happy one, at least for those who believe in democracy anyway. Uh, so, okay, yesterday we detailed how last week, after months of refusing to call special elections in two state Senate districts in Wisconsin, 
because even though the two vacant seats are long held Republican seats, they're in Republican districts that have long been held by Republicans. Despite that, Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker clearly felt that those seats might fall into Democratic hands or something terrible like that. So rather than call special elections, as he is required to do under law, under state law, he's been trying to say that there was no need to do so since elections. Hey, they're coming up in November anyway. We're going to have elections uh, at that point. So uh, voters in you know those two Senate districts can just wait till then. They can just do without. Even though that means going without a state senator for more than a year since these seats were vacated last December. And they were vacated, by the way, because Scott Walker appointed the two Republicans who held those seats uh, to posts in his own administration. So last week, a court, a judge that Walker himself had appointed to the court, ordered him to call special elections by this week, by Thursday at noon. Instead, the Republicans who control the state legislature in Wisconsin, they decided they wanted to call a special uh, uh, session to call everyone back uh, for a special session in order to change the law that the judge was responding to. They went uh, then they went back to the same court to ask for an extension beyond Thursday at noon before Walker had to declare a date for special elections, knowing that they were going to call this special session uh, and uh, change the law. So they said, you know what, just give us a delay. If you don't mind, before Scott Walker has to call these uh, special elections, can we just have an extra week or so? Well, a second judge says, no way. You guys are just going to go back and change the law. That's not how the way this works. So that second judge ordered Walker to call the elections by noon on Thursday. And then late on Wednesday, after we had already gone to air, uh, Walker and the Republicans appealed to a third judge in a different county, a very conservative county. But as it turns out, that appellate court judge very quickly said no way as well. Presiding Judge Paul F. Riley wrote in his response, quote, representative government and the election of our representatives are never, quote, unnecessary, as Walker had argued, never a, quote, waste of taxpayer resources, and the calling of the special elections are his obligation. So with their third rejection from a state court, they were left only with an appeal to the state Supreme Court where they had vowed to go if they lost in the appeals court and where a majority of the justices are right wingers. But today, instead, Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker issued an executive order scheduling special elections to fill two vacant legislative seats as Senate Republicans abandoned their efforts to pass a bill blocking the contest amid intense criticism that the GOP was trying to avoid adding to strings of losses. Do you think? State attorneys had planned to ask the Wisconsin Supreme Court, which is controlled by conservative justices, according to AP, to move the deadline for calling the elections in order to reconvene the legislature to change the law entirely. But Wisconsin Solicitor General uh, Misha Saitlin filed a letter instead saying that Walker had decided not to seek relief from the Supreme Court at this time. No reason was given. 
gosh, I wonder why. Well, I I don't know why I, I don't know why he decided to not go to his friends at the U.S. Supreme Court. Although there's, uh, well, we can guess. Uh, this is uh, spoken to as well in another story here. But uh, Walker's order now sets elections in both of these legislative districts for June 12. Primaries will be held uh, May 15 if needed. His office announced uh, the order in a news release that included no additional comments. In uh, nonetheless, in a Thursday morning tweet storm, Walker uh, took to Twitter to blame, quote, liberals from Washington, D.C. and former Attorney General Eric Holder, whose national redistricting group had sued Walker to force him to schedule the races. Uh, Walker wrote on Twitter, Obama Attorney General Eric Holder and his Washington, D.C. based special interest group <laughs> are behind the legal push to force Wisconsin taxpayers to pay for special elections for seats that will be filled in a few months in the normal elections. In subsequent tweets, Walker claimed that uh, Holder's group, the National Redistricting Foundation, had only intervened to boost its profile and to raise money. Holder filed back, noting that a, quote, in all caps, Wisconsin judge on Wednesday had ordered the races to move forward. And actually now three Wisconsin judges <laughs> uh, and that uh, Walker had, quote, undermined and diluted the voting rights of his own constituents, which he did. Well, yeah. I mean, that seems obvious that he does not actually care if any of the folks that are in his own state get representation I, if they're Democrats. And, and by, by the or way, they no, might get, even get, possibly get, this is this is these are Republicans. I mean, these are Republican districts. And so, you know, the idea that Eric Holder's <laughs> that this is a special interest group, a group whose interest is in holding elections in two seats, two state Senate seats that have been long held by Republicans. These are Republican districts that apparently calling for elections is now um, a special interest when it comes to Republicans, at least when it comes to Republican Governor Scott Walker, who is not dumb, who is not the dumbest tool in the shed like uh, Maine's Governor Paul LePage. Kathleen Finnerty, chair, chairwoman of the Door County Democratic Party, told the state Senate's election committee during a hearing uh, that they were holding in order to change the law on Wednesday when they were planning to change the law. Um, the uh, chairwoman of Door County Democrats said it couldn't be more transparent what's happening here. The governor is afraid of having a Democrat elected into this position. She said, do you know how surreal it is to sit in front of you without representation? It's demoralizing and unethical on your part, she told the lawmakers. Yes, they were going to change the law without filling those two seats, even though all of this is about filling those two seats. There would be nobody representing uh, the folks in those two counties. Senate Majority Leader uh, Scott Fitzgerald told WTMJ uh, minutes after Walker had scheduled the elections that uh, he was going to drop the effort to move the bill forward because of the judge's order. He said the governor was boxed in. He couldn't go beyond noon today or the threat of contempt was hanging out there. Since when does that stop you? Since when does the threat of contempt stop a, a, a Republican? Just ask uh, Sheriff Joe Arpaio. He violated federal court orders, was found in contempt, and he got a pardon from the president. So 
You know, why should that matter? In in Pennsylvania, they're impeaching four out of the uh, eight Supreme Court judges uh, because th- they found against them when it came to redistricting. So uh, why would a little contempt of court hurt? Anyway, Fitzgerald, uh, for some reason, said the threat of contempt was hanging out there. We don't know what it would look like, but it's certainly not a good place to be. Well, good for them. They blinked, it seems. It's surprising. It shouldn't be, but it is. Unless they have some other scheme up their sleeves to change uh, election law later, it uh, it remains unclear whether they would be able to cancel an already scheduled election. But you know what? I wouldn't put it past them for trying. So we will keep our eyes open on that. And But just by way of reminder, Republicans have lost more than 30 legislative seats nationwide since uh, Donald Trump took office. One of them was in Wisconsin. This is the one that freaked out Governor Walker uh, when uh, Democrat Patty Schachner won an open state Senate seat in a very traditionally Republican district in January where I think uh, Donald Trump had won by, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 points. Uh, a seat that had been held for more than a decade by Republicans. So uh, Walker kind of freaked out after that. He branded that uh, Democratic win, that Democratic flip, a wake-up call for Republicans uh, in another tweet storm that night of the election. By the way, Scott Walker is up for re-election himself this November. Uh, Also earlier this month, Democrat Connor Lamb, speaking of Pennsylvania, captured what had been a reliably Republican congressional seat in Pennsylvania, one that Donald Trump had won almost by 20 points. So if Walker and the GOP had their way in this case, just so you understand the math, elections wouldn't have happened until November with the winners sworn in next January, January 2019 leaving those two state Senate seats open for more than a year since they were vacated in December of 2017. That's what they were trying to do. Taxation without representation. Didn't that used to be a rallying cry for Americans? You mean the Tea Party and all those guys? Yeah. Yeah. That's what they were fighting for. All right. But gaming our democracy is uh, apparently now what Republicans do in lieu of, you know, winning elections fair and square because they have more popular or better ideas or something crazy like that. But Republicans, uh, they're expert at it. Democrats, however, have some tricks of their own. And one of those tricks was on trial in the U.S. Supreme Court this week. We'll take a quick break. And we will be back with uh, GOP partisan gerrymandering expert David Daly on the landmark partisan redistricting case uh, cases, two of them that are now at the U.S. Supreme Court, one including a Democratic partisan redistricting scheme. David Daly joins us next to discuss the seat that the Democrats stole in a Republican district. That's up next. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast.
Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Well, this could, could be the year that the U.S. Supreme Court brings an end Finally, to the long and democracy-undermining practice of partisan gerrymandering, which Republicans took to new heights or new lows, I guess, depending on how you may wish to look at it, after the 2010 census, when in 2011 they redistricted states across the country that they controlled after those 2010 elections in sophisticated, computer-data-driven, granular ways that assure virtually uncrackable majorities for the U.S. House in many of those states and at the state legislative level within them. It's taken only only three full election cycles or so, but the the state and federal courts across the country have finally taken notice and found many of those GOP redistricting schemes to be unconstitutional violations of voters' First Amendment rights. In Wisconsin, for example, the federal court tossed out the entire state legislative map as an unconstitutional gerrymander. In North Carolina, a federal court ordered new U.S. House maps for the entire state as well. In Pennsylvania, GOP control of the legislature in 2011 assured 13 Republican U.S. House seats to just five for Democrats over the last three general elections since 2011. That despite the fact that Democratic voter registration outpaces Republican registration in the state. And Democrats have won, uh, I think it's 18 of 24 statewide elections during that same period. And yet in the U.S. House, they were shut out 13 to 5 election after election after election. That U.S. House map in Pennsylvania was finally tossed out uh, by the state's Supreme Court, which implemented new ones in time for this year's crucial midterm elections after finding that extreme party, uh, partisan gerrymander in, uh, in Pennsylvania to be a violation of the state's constitution. So in that case, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to block it. But in states like Wisconsin and North Carolina, the federal court orders for new maps in time for the 2018 elections were all put on hold as the U.S. Supreme Court decided they wanted to weigh in on what all of these lower courts had previously and repeatedly found, that this type of extreme partisan gerrymandering was an unlawful violation of voting rights and the U.S. Constitution. That means the districting in those states will now more than likely stay in place for still one more midterm election at the very least. The Supreme Court heard the landmark Wisconsin case, Gil v. Whitford, back in October. A decision is not expected there until June. But on Wednesday of this week, the U.S. Supremes uh, heard oral arguments in yet another partisan gerrymandering case, 
their second of the session. Benisek versus Lamone is a challenge uh, for a change being brought by Republicans in the state of Maryland who are contending that one U.S. House district in the state was purposely and unlawfully partisan gerrymandered by Democrats who controlled new state maps after the 2010 census under a Democratic majority legislature and the state's Democratic governor at the time, Martin O'Malley. So will a Republican challenge to extreme partisan gerrymandering make it any easier to find five justices on the Republicans' stolen U.S. Supreme Court that might finally put an end to the practice once and for all and restore something that looks more like actual representative democracy in these United States? While the high court has long ruled that racial gerrymandering is unlawful, they've never actually rung in on on whether partisan gerrymandering violates the U.S. Constitution. Will this be their moment? Or will the uh, chance to find five Supreme Court justices willing to strike down extreme uh, partisan gerrymandering slip away yet again? As the man believed to be the swing vote here, once again, 81-year-old Justice Anthony Kennedy is now rumored to be considering retirement after the court's current term ends in June. Is it possible to read those Supreme Court tea leaves based on questions raised by the nine justices at those oral arguments uh, in the Maryland case on Wednesday? Well, let's find out. One man who was once again in the courtroom for the arguments in Benisek versus Lamone this week, just as he was last October for the landmark Gill v. Whitford, uh, Wisconsin case, is the man who wrote the book about the GOP's extreme partisan gerrymandering scheme launched and well-funded well prior to the 2010 midterm elections when Republicans were able to gain control of state legislatures in time to remap after the 2010 census. That would be our old friend David Daly, the author of what we call Rat Flipped, the true story behind the secret plan to steal American democracy. He's the former editor-in-chief of Salon. He's now a senior fellow at fairvote.org, where he continues, frankly, the most important fight that we have in this nation for fair elections for everyone, and yes, an end to extreme partisan gerrymandering of our democracy. David Daly, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hi, Brad. Great to be here. So we've uh, spoken a lot about how Republicans have gamed U.S. House uh, and state legislative seats across the country. But here we got a case of Democrats being accused of the same thing, David, uh, in at least one district, if not the entire statewide uh, map. Uh, so what is at issue specifically in Benesik versus uh, Lamone, and how is that uh, different than the cases made against Republicans in places like Wisconsin and North Carolina and Pennsylvania, etc. Uh, this is a fascinating case, Brad. Yes, the Democrats gerrymander as well. Uh, this is not a question of both uh, sides do it, mm -hmm. however, and it's not a fair equivalent mm -hmm. uh, kind of thing. Um, this case is about Maryland's congressional district, mm -hmm. which, if you read the emails and the, dep and the depositions and look at the draft maps of the politicians, there is no doubt that Democrats were trying to steal this seat. So in 2010, Maryland elects six Democrats and two Republicans to Congress. Mm -hmm. Democrats control the entire redistricting process after the 2010 census, mm -hmm. and they say, okay, is there a way for us to get to an 8-0 map? 
they look at it and they say, well, if we do that, we will spread our incumbents a little bit too thin. Let's do 7-1. They target the 6th district, which had been held by a 10-term veteran Republican lawmaker named Roscoe Bartlett. Mm -hmm. And essentially what they do is they completely turn this district inside out. It had been a district with about 55,000 more registered Republicans than Democrats. Mm -hmm. Uh, They shift hundreds of thousands of voters in and out of this district. It becomes a Democratic majority district that in 2012 elects a Democrat by about 20 points over a 20-year incumbent. This simply doesn't happen. Um, It is the best, and in many ways, single example of a Democratic gerrymander in the 2011 process. Uh, so if you look at it, um, you know, Pennsylvania is 13-5, Ohio is 12-4, mm-hmm. Michigan is 9-5, Republican. Democrats stole one seat there. Republicans remapped it, about 193 nationwide. So right. if you look at the scoreboard, it's about 193 to 1. Uh, but well, of know, course, both sides. Yeah, of course, that doesn't make it any better that they did it at all here. But no, what, it what absolutely I'm, does not. What I'm interested to hear then is, you know, just a few months ago, Democrats were in in the same court in uh, in the Supreme Court mm-hmm. arguing against partisan gerrymandering. Republicans were arguing that they have every right to do so because I guess they were in charge of the legislature, so they can draw maps however they want. Now the roles are completely reversed in this Maryland case um, with, you know, Dems defending the jury. So how do these folks make the opposite argument that each of them were making just a few months ago on the same issue? Well, it's amazing. If you read Martin O'Malley's emails and depositions, Mm -hmm. the governor of Maryland is talking about how, well, this is perfectly legal, and we won the election, and we control this process, so we are going to do what it is that we want to do here for the Democratic Party. Well, if that's the case, then the Democrats have to be really quiet all of a sudden about Ohio and Michigan and North Carolina and Pennsylvania right. and all these other states where they're on the other side of it. Right. Um, so, consistency. If you believe in democracy and fair and meaningful elections in which all of our votes count, you better be, you know, on the side of the angels in, in both mm-hmm. of these cases. Mm-hmm. Now, Maryland and Wisconsin are operating under slightly different legal questions. In Wisconsin, where Republicans gerrymandered the state assembly map, mm-hmm. the challenge here is essentially a 14th Amendment equal protection challenge. So it's saying that all votes do not count equally when the state is gerrymandered, um, and the, the voters in Wisconsin have come up with a handful of a very smart social science methods mm-hmm. uh, that use computer technology and other academic uh, vote studies to show when a partisan gerrymander has gone uh, too far. Mm-hmm. Essentially, these uh, stats help uncover what the politicians do, and they show how durable and efficient uh, these gerrymanders are. Um, and the Maryland case, on the other hand, is a First Amendment case. Okay. And what the Republican voters are arguing here is that when the Democrats used partisan voting information to create various indexes to draw these uh, district lines, they used partisan voting information, uh, their votes, their opinions, in such a way as to penalize them and make it harder for them to get a fair representation. Mm -hmm. They burdened their representational rights 
They made it more difficult for them to exercise their freedom of assembly, and uh, they're saying that uh, that's a First Amendment violation. Mm -hmm. Um, Justice Kennedy has been very open to both of these arguments in the past. Right. Uh, Back in the Veith case, back in 2004, Mm -hmm. which is the last time that partisan gerrymandering really came before the court, Mm -hmm. uh, Kennedy lays out a roadmap, and he and he says that there's a First Amendment path and there's a Fourteenth Amendment path, and these two cases really strictly follow what Kennedy himself said he would need in order to find partisan gerrymandering unconstitutional. Except now it's hard to see whether there's five justices, whether to go along with him, and even whether Kennedy's one of them. And let me let me sort of uh, restate that because I think what he was saying, uh, what what people understand that he was saying uh, some years ago in that in that 2004 case was that he'd like to find against partisan gerrymandering, but the problem seems to be to find a way to define whether a gerrymander is uh, is partisan or not. The court, it seems, would like to, to find some kind of formula, at least the court, uh, the, the liberals on the court plus Kennedy, uh, would, would seem to they want to find some kind of formula to test before they toss out partisan gerrymandering. So basically they don't have to hear a case on every single future challenge to a partisan gerrymander because there will be some sort of test to determine, to define what makes a partisan gerrymander. Is is that an accurate way to characterize the dilemma that the court is now trying to wrestle with in both in both this Maryland that and this Wisconsin exactly case? Right. They are searching for a standard to measure this, that this court can apply, but also that future courts mm-hmm. can apply. And all of the justices want very much to stay out of, of what they consider the political thicket. Mm-hmm. The judges do not want to be investing the credibility of the court and of the entire judicial system mm-hmm. in adjudicating every single political dispute over maps. They need Map to making t- has historically. Yeah, they, they, no, they need an actual test that they can yeah. use that they don't have to ring in on every time and be accused of being partisan. So what were you able to determine then from the arguments on Wednesday in the Supreme Court as to whether Kennedy or and or the rest of the court was any yeah. closer to being able to, to do that, to come up with such a well, test? This is, and this is the trick, because back in Gill versus Whitford, you'll recall, Mm -hmm. a lot of the justices, both the liberals and the conservatives, kind of raised their eyebrows at these statistical tests. Right. Chief Justice Roberts called it sociological gobbledygook. Justice Gorsuch looked at this and and thought that what he was being given was so random that he compared it to his uh, spicy barbecue steak rub. Um, Even Justice Breyer thought it was a little bit too complicated. And so... The First Amendment argument would seem to be a, a simpler one and a broader one, really easy for voters and even justices to, to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, that Chief, uh, Chief Justice Roberts said he lacked the educational background to use the efficiency gap and sort of some of the other standards that the Wisconsin voters were bringing to him. Um, uh-huh. If he got on the court and was told that there would be no math. Um, <laughs> But the First Amendment argument lacks teeth, right? I mean, it's a standard without specifics. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think that that is what the court was really struggling with, was they all agree that what happened in Maryland was ugly and undemocratic and should not be allowed. But I think that they still are having a hard time defining what is excessive partisanship, what is too much partisanship, and how can they make other courts down the line adhere to that exact same standard. Um, And a lot of us who I think were optimistic that the combination of these two cases might uh, together be so complementary that Mm -hmm. they led to sort of some grand unifying theory that allowed this court to solve this problem on the eve of Justice Kennedy's possible retirement. Um, I also think it's possible now to look at this and just say, boy, the court might not like either of these standards, and they might throw their hands in the air and punt on both of these cases. Mm -hmm. And then uh, where does that leave us if you have a very different court perhaps minus Kennedy, perhaps minus one of the liberal justices in 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 less good health, yeah. um, especially as we head towards 2020 and then next a redistricting cycle. Yeah, no, this could, uh, if they don't take action now, uh, really one way or another, this, uh, this this sort of feels like the last chance, which is why I know that a lot of people, or at least the last chance for a while, I know that uh, you know a lot of people have been watching this case very closely. I have been hoping that uh, you know where we have Republicans in this case, Republicans being harmed in this Maryland case, that might help some of the right wingers on the court to appreciate. Uh, the dangers of partisan gerrymandering. But uh, based on your uh, observations, David, and some of the other folks, I was reading uh, uh, Mark Joseph Stern and Ian Milheiser, who I think uh, both were at the arguments as well. Uh, For example, Mark said, uh, just got out of uh, Supreme Court, weird arguments. Uh, I'm skeptical the liberals have the votes to prohibit extreme partisan gerrymandering. They appear desperate to find a standard. Uh, He writes in his article that they've had nearly six months since the uh, Wisconsin case, the Gil V. Whitford case, uh, to settle on an answer. Uh, and if they had, then, you know, they, there might have been some signs of it during the argument. But he says that after Wednesday, it's pretty apparent that the justices still have no idea how they're going to tackle these cases. And Ian Milheiser said basically the same thing. He says the Supreme Court wanted to strike, wants to strike down partisan gerrymandering, but has no idea how to do so. Um, you agree with both of those assessments at this point? I do. I think that's right. I mean, the court heard oral arguments on Gill back in October. Mm-hmm. They ordinarily go into conference and have a sense of where the votes are a few weeks later. So presumably by December, they'd taken some preliminary votes and begun to assign opinions. Mm -hmm. Um, If there were five votes to overturn this right now, I think we would have a sense. There was a moment in the Maryland case on Wednesday when Justice Breyer suggested, why don't we re-argue all of these cases uh, together? Uh, Let's take North Carolina, Wisconsin, and Maryland and set up a blackboard and just start over again. No, oh, good. And I don't God. think you suggest starting over again if you have a five votes. I think when you've got the votes, you uh, assign the ruling and announce the opinion. And they have not done that, which wow. means that Kennedy is not quite 
satisfied. Which means then that, uh, I mean, the stakes here are, you know, either the are court huge. overturns uh, these uh, the, these lower court rulings now, which were very clear that these were partisan gerrymandering, yeah. or as you said, maybe they punt somehow. Um, basically, they wh- what happens in a punt? They they allow the existing maps to stand as is, and they say, "Hey, go make further arguments and come talk to us again in a few years." I think that's entirely possible. I mean, they could toss a case on a legal technicality, on a question of standing. Um, there are lots of things that they could do if they don't want to make a ruling on this mm. right now. The problem is, no matter what they do, if it is not a finding against partisan gerrymandering, it will essentially take off any guardrails for legislators of either party when this process comes back around. That's what I was so, going to ask. So when the court... Yeah. Yeah. Are, are Dems? I mean, as the guy who wrote the book on this, uh, are are Democrats likely to do what the Republicans did if, in fact, they are both somehow parties, able to win back the some some states after the twenty twenty census? Both parties are lined up to have probably a billion dollar contest to control the governorships and state legislative chambers over the course of the twenty eighteen and twenty twenty mm-hmm. cycle. There's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars spent on negative ads in all of these races as we turn towards a redistricting after the 2020 census. Um, when the court decided not to make a decision against partisan gerrymandering in Veith back in 2004, mm-hmm. it signaled to politicians and lawmakers that they could have a partisan free-for-all in 2010, and they did. In 2020, the technology that, that allows uh, this kind of sorting, the, the big data that mm-hmm. makes it so clear where we all live and possible to draw these surgical block-by-block maps has only gotten better. If the courts do not solve this now, it's not only perhaps the last opportunity for a generation for them to come in, assuming that there are changes in the makeup of the courts between now and the next time mm-hmm. that, that they get a part of the gerrymandering cases, but the gloves will be off in 2020 in a really aggressive way. Wow. The Democrats are in a hole in all of these state legislatures. It does not mean that in 2018 and 2020 they could not have two consecutive wave elections and perhaps try to dig themselves out of that in states like Ohio and Michigan and North Carolina, but it's really hard for them. Um, yeah. If there is no ruling on this from the court, Republicans will probably have the upper hand. It may not be as dominant a hand as they had in 2010, but they will have definitely an advantage heading into the 2020. Or, or we see uh, what you know something akin to what happened in Pennsylvania, where they uh, challenge where they can, where they challenge these maps under uh, state constitutions, since apparently. The federal judiciary seems to have such a difficult time doing, frankly, what everybody uh, knows. You can look at this and everybody can see how, you know, the opposite of small d democracy this is. Uh, David Daly, I got to get out. Uh, Always great talking to you, my friend. You should uh, buy his book uh, with the unspeakable name Rat (laughs) Eft. The true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy, and you can follow him on the Twitter at Dave Daily the number three, 
and of course at fairvote.org. David, really appreciate you joining us uh, again today. Always a pleasure. Anytime, Brad. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. All right, quick break, and we are back with the usual mix of uh, horrible and a little bit of good news in the Green News Report with Desi Doyen. That's up next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance, now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. You know, uh, to be clear, I wasn't saying that you were horrible. <laughs> it's the news. You don't, you know, it's, I know. you don't create the news. I you just know. report it. But still. But still. Welcome back <laughs> to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. And uh, actually, there is some uh, really good news here in this uh, report for uh, natural gas pipeline protesters. Yes. So... Yeah, it's not all bad news in the Green News Report, as it sometimes is. Uh, Anyway, all right, let's get to it. Our latest Green News Report. 1.8 trillion pieces of plastic weighing 80,000 tons. Plastic pollution within the Great Pacific Garbage Patch is increasing exponentially. Cutting greenhouse gas emissions would save 150 million lives around the world. Americans have grown increasingly polarized in their views on global warming. Plus, the people that put themselves in the way of building this fossil fuel pipeline were found not responsible by reason of necessity. Pipeline protesters found not guilty in landmark new ruling. All of those happy verdicts and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. It was this past administration, Obama, that said that we had to choose. Choose jobs or growth at the expense of environment or choose environment at the expense of jobs. Well, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can fool the viewers of Fox and Friends all the time. Am I right, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt? This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, you say the American people are becoming more polarized than ever? I don't believe it. (laughs) Yes, they are becoming more polarized than ever in their views on global warming. That's according to the latest Gallup poll released this week. In a potential sign that the Trump administration's aggressive climate denial may be shifting the public debate, independents have grown more doubtful of scientists' warnings about climate change over the past year. Mm. 65% now know that the vast majority of scientists believe global warming is actually occurring, but that's down eight points from just last year. So it's still a majority of so-called independents, but just a smaller 
majority. Yes. However, the poll does find that more Americans than ever before now believe scientists' warnings that global warming will pose a serious threat within their lifetimes. But that is still only 45 percent of Americans. Despite these changes, the long-term trend of public opinion, according to Gallup, is still shifting overwhelmingly toward the scientific consensus on global warming. Meanwhile, taking serious action on climate change now could mean saving hundreds of millions of lives around the world. That's according to a new study published in Nature Climate Change. Researchers at Duke University calculated the human health benefits of governments taking action to hold climate change to just 1.5 degrees Celsius over pre-industrial times, a more aggressive target than the current 2 degrees Celsius limit that nations agreed to in the United Nations Paris Accord. That study found that meeting the 1.5 degree Celsius target would prevent more than 150 million premature deaths worldwide by 2030, mostly by decreasing air pollution caused by fossil fuels. Well, don't tell the folks on Fox News they really don't want to hear about saving 150 million lives. A new survey estimates that the Pacific Garbage Patch, that massive toxic soup of tiny plastic pollution in the Pacific Ocean, somewhere between California and Hawaii, is actually much bigger than previously estimated, as much as 16 times bigger, covering an area three times the size of France. Hmm. In a BBC interview, project manager Fiona Llewellyn of the Ocean Cleanup Foundation said that the soup is becoming more dense as more trash enters the ocean. Once plastic enters the ocean, it can persist for, we think, thousands of years. Um, It doesn't ever go away. It just breaks down into smaller and smaller particles, into microplastics. Um, And as we've seen, these microplastics are able to enter the food chain. The Ocean Cleanup Foundation next plans to test whether a large year-round collection screen in the ocean can succeed in cleaning up at least some of that plastic pollution. But there is some good news. The New Jersey state legislature has rejected the Trump administration's plan to open their Atlantic coastal waters to offshore drilling. This week, they passed unanimously a bill to ban all offshore oil and gas development in state waters and ban infrastructure that would support drilling in federal waters off the state's coast. New Jersey's Democratic Governor Phil Murphy is expected to sign it. Finally, in Massachusetts, for the first time, a judge has found 13 protesters not responsible by reason of necessity, that's the equivalent of not guilty in a criminal case, for their civil disobedience action temporarily blocking the construction of a pipeline in West Roxbury. The judge accepted their defense that they were justified because of the potential environmental and public health impacts of the pipeline and because of the urgent need to stop climate change. Here's Karenna Gore, daughter of former Vice President Al Gore and one of the defendants. We're going to be uh, demanding that the people who are in elected office and also the corporations uh, who are putting their costs, the costs of their doing business for their own profits, they are putting that cost on the public. They're putting that cost on future generations. And we are taking responsibility to say no to that. Good for Karenna Gore. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. See? 
There's some good news there. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, protesters win one for a change. Yes, Pipeline and especially protesters. using that necessity defense to say it was necessary and the judge actually listened this time. And it was uh, Karenna Gore, uh, daughter of Al Gore. And uh, Angie Coiro, our uh, guest host here occasionally on the broadcast, she was interviewing Al Gore on the broadcast last December, and she had asked Al Gore... Not about his daughter, but just in general about citizen protests, citizen protesters. Civil disobedience. Right. She had asked about some guy who was a 70 or 80 year old guy who was arrested apparently for multiple times for protesting Keystone XL. And it was a charming moment from the uh, vice president in his response when he uh, he mentioned his daughter in this in I'm this case. that you say this guy keeps getting arrested as a way of praising uh, him. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I feel the same thing. I mean, it's a sign of where we are that uh, I tell people, my oldest daughter was arrested. I'm so proud of her. It's so, it's so she laid down in a trench that they were digging for one of these new gas pipeline networks. And I'm, I'm so proud of you, honey. You're arrested. <laughs> Very cute. <laughs> Very darling. All right. Uh, that's it. Uh, we, yeah, we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, David Daly of Fair Vote, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, like that great interview with Al Gore from December of last year, uh, you can find it anytime and download it for free at bradblog.com. You can also drop me email if you like to tell me how swell a fellow I am or am not at bradcast <laughs> at bradblog.com. And you can find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the bradblog. My thanks, as ever, to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do every day. You know, we don't have um, corporate sponsors that you can boycott like Laura Ingram, who was <laughs> insulting the Parkland students. By the way, she's apologized for that now. Uh, now, now that, that they started targeting her advertisers, yeah. right? Uh, well, we don't have any of those. We have you instead. So my thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do every day over your public airwaves without fear or favor or corporate sponsorship. We have just you. Yeah, you. Yeah, no, not not that other guy. You. The, the one who has not yet stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to sign up for a, uh, a monthly sustaining subscription of any amount you want. Don't wait for someone else to do it. You. I'm, yes, you. I'm talking to you. Right. Okay, great. Thanks. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.